0: In February of this year, about a month after the attack on the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, the Obama administration held a summit on countering violent extremism.
1: Violent extremists and terrorists thrive when people of different religions or sex pull away from each other and are able to isolate each other and label them as they as opposed to us, something separate and apart.
0: Representatives from more than 60 countries came together in Washington to discuss how to curb extremist ideologies, especially those being spread by al-Qaeda and the Islamic state.
2: There's a lot of talk about taking content off the internet, and that may be a part of the solution. But we also need to spend a lot more time, energy, effort, creative brains to think of ways in which we can engage and challenge extremist ideas online.
0: The Charlie Hebdo attack was one of the latest in a string of violent attacks by Islamic extremists in the West, most recently the shooting in Garland, Texas.
3: Two heavily armed men opened fire at an event featuring a cartoon contest to draw the Prophet Muhammad.
0: Despite efforts by law enforcement, NGOs, and community-based groups, the number of recruits being enticed to travel to Syria and Iraq to fight with the Islamic State is growing dramatically. A recent study shows that more than 20,000 foreign fighters have joined the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. Nearly a fifth of them come from Western Europe and a handful from the U.S. as well. This March, a Philadelphia woman was indicted for trying to join ISIS by communicating online. She used an alias young lioness.
2: The criminal complaint filed in federal court claims the 30-year-old woman wanted to be a martyr on the battlefield in Syria. She allegedly communicated with an ISIS fighter in Syria. Who...
0: FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force and local Philadelphia police had been monitoring her activity for two years before her arrest. While extremists present a real danger, they, of course, represent only a small fraction of the overall Muslim population. There are about two and a half million Muslims in the United States, according to the Pew Research Center. That number is expected to double in the next 15 years. Notably, immigrant Muslim households in the U.S. earn slightly more than the American average. Their population is spread throughout the country, and many Muslims have risen to prominent positions in society, in medicine, in politics, and in business. The Muslim community in Western Europe is a lot different. There are a lot more Muslims there, 18 to 23 million. Many of them live in rundown and isolated neighborhoods on the outskirts of Europe's big cities. It's a problem European leaders like German Chancellor Angela Merkel have tried to address. At a migrant conference in Berlin last year, she emphasized that Islam is a part of Germany and that excluding certain groups from society is what she calls reprehensible. Many immigrants in Germany have yet to obtain full citizenship and therefore find it hard to get jobs, which prevents them from fully engaging in German society, and that puts them at risk of radicalization. So it's a vicious cycle. Today on America Abroad, we bring together representatives of NGOs, law enforcement, and local leaders in Philadelphia and Berlin to discuss what can be done to build trust with those communities. Our hosts for this live town hall event are Jackie Leiden in Philadelphia and Eleanor Beardsley in Berlin. Jackie is a longtime reporter and public radio host. Eleanor is NPR's correspondent in Paris. She covered the Charlie Hebdo attack and reports regularly on Muslim issues in France. This town hall was recorded at WHYY in Philadelphia and at the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin, Germany, with NPR Berlin.
4: I think it's time to meet our panelists. We're really fortunate today. Here in Philadelphia, we have Maureen Farouk with us. Maureen is a senior fellow with the World Organization for Resource Development and Education, based in and outside of DC. Her organization, among other things, runs a project called the Montgomery County Model. That's in Maryland. It's a public-private partnership between government, law enforcement, and the faith community. And it specifically works to promote public safety and prevent radicalization and extremism. So welcome to you, Maureen. Thank you. And we have another frequent guest to America Abroad, and that is Zainab al-Sawaj, originally from Basra, Iraq. We were chatting before the show. She's co-founder and executive director of the American Islamic Congress since 2001, a nonprofit working to support human and civil rights for Muslim and non-Muslim populations. And the organization works with young Muslims on university campuses around the world. I know that you are a frequent traveler, uh, 75 cities, I think I've read, and villages since 2001. So, Zainab, thank you for making time for us here.
5: Here in Berlin, we have Dr. Henning Hoff, who is the executive editor at a new online Berlin policy journal, which is published in English. So I would like to say welcome, Henning. We will use the informal American approach, using first names, if that's okay with everyone. Welcome, Henning.
6: Thank you very much. It's absolutely okay.
5: And next to Henning, we have Khaldun Al Sadi, and he's a speaker for the Dresden Islamic Center and Mosque and a project coordinator for the Young Islam Conference in Berlin. He's also studying journalism and Arabic at the University of Leipzig. Khaldun, thank you for being here.
7: Thank you for having me.
4: So, noting that we have a lot of good students here from Central High School, and that all of us want to be, we're reiterating a few of the key numbers, 18 to 23 million Muslims in Western Europe. Germany has the second largest Muslim population in Europe, that's next to France, at about 5 million, most of them from Turkey, and that number is growing. So I'll also note that about 600 people have been recruited by the Islamic State from Germany. That might not sound like a huge number to us, but among the European nations, only France has seen more people who are recruited. So let's go to our panelists for some initial thoughts about this. And Eleanor, we're going to start with Berlin and go to
5: you first, all right? Okay, we will, Jackie, thank you. Um, Dr. Henning-Hoff, Henning, I'm going to start with you. Can you just tell me what has been the reaction in Germany to the recruitment Has the German government done anything? Because I know in France, they can now take your passport if you're suspected of wanting to go to Syria to fight.
6: Yeah, it is. Uh, It is possible to stop people traveling to Syria and Iraq. But of course, sometimes it's not easy to prove that someone uh, has these intentions. And of course, uh, particularly in Germany, I think there's a certain concern about sort of what kind of balance we want to strike between personal freedoms and sort of the rule of law and sort of this anticipating counterterrorism, which in Germany and elsewhere sort of sometimes overstepping the rights our constitution grants to every citizen.
5: Okay, we'll go now to Khaldun. I want to ask you, what has been the reaction of the Muslim community in Germany to, you know, the sudden rise of Islamic State? I mean, what is the reaction?
7: Well, when it comes to the uh, founding of the uh, Islamic State. For us as, as Muslims, or for the people I try to represent in my local community, it was quite a shock because now there is an institution for this Islamist terrorism and we have to not just fight against a certain image, now we have to fight against an institution like this so-called state. And of course, when you talk to, especially in an area uh, like Saxony, anyway, where you just have a few Muslims, to uh, prove to them that this is indeed not Islamic. Uh, that is a really hard thing to do, but we never lose optimism. We try to do the best we can.
4: Thank you very much. Zainab, uh you've worked with many Muslim and non-Muslim groups around the world in your uh, endeavor with the American Islamic Congress. We had talked a moment ago about the the numbers the vast numerical difference in Muslim populations between the u s and Europe, could you elaborate on that a little bit, please? definitely There are a lot
8: of differences between European Muslims and American Muslims, and this is Not because of the practices or anything, but the lifestyle and the type of laws and the cultural uh, aspect that they live under. In America, most of the, or majority of the population are immigrants from many different countries. Uh, So you don't feel that separation between people who come from different countries and people who have been here for a longer period of time or born here. And that certainly is, is the first uh, difference. The second, uh, our law and regulations here in the United States guarantee uh, the right for all citizens and all, everyone is equal. This is, has a huge impact. What I have realized in Europe, the case is different. And recently, we um, had a meeting with several uh, European Muslims, and each one is talking about the difficulties that they are finding in their communities, and they do not feel that they are really emerged into the mainstream society in there.
4: Thank you. You are no stranger to travel, Maureen. I know that you've uh, lived in Pakistan, and of course you're working through World Organization for Resource Development and Education, your organization really uh, specifically on local communities. Um, How at risk would you say that uh, American Muslims are to the threat of radicalization? We've seen some.
9: The interesting thing in our research has been that the American Muslim population is uh, roughly at the same at risk as any other minority community in America. So actually if you look at the risk factors of radicalization, it follows a very similar trend for those who are at risk of joining an Islamist extremist organization as a white supremacist organization. So Oftentimes, the uh, appeal of groups um, like Al-Shabaab or, or ISIS will often refer to their work as uh, you know, working in Disneyland. So they really paint this glorious image of uh, abundant food and this luxurious lifestyle. And then, of course, you have political grievances. And here uh, you have a lot of um, folks that have frustrations, whether it's with US foreign policy, uh, abroad or with um, certain governments and their policies towards um, uh, Muslim communities and others. And then last but not least, ideological issues. And so here we have that justification of the use of violence. Now, whether that's couched in religious terminology or through some other extremist ideological advantage, we see that we act- that there are
4: there are a lot of similarities between different communities. Let's get some of, thank you. Let's get some of our audience members in sure. here now. Sir, your question, please.
2: Well, my name is Jack Peters. I live in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I think part of that problem is education. I think in the United States, we don't understand what Muslims are. I mean, there's so few of them that we don't bother to mess with it, right? I mean, most Americans, I think, well, maybe not most, but a lot of Americans think Muslims are... are violent people, but obviously that's not the way your scripture says. Is there some way to get education going?
4: Thank you, thank you. Well, education is, of course, in the name of your organization, Maureen. Would you respond to that, please? Sure, absolutely. I think one of the
9: issues is, is um, you know, as we're drawing these comparisons between uh, the Muslim community in Germany and then here in the U.S., is that we we are fortunate that we have a, a longer tradition of uh, Muslim immigrants coming into the U.S. You know, we have the Lebanese community coming as early as 1960s, 1970s. So they've had several decades to start building up these civil society institutions. But by and large, a lot of Muslim American activism is still very much limited to these issues of civil rights and civil liberties. What we really need to do is kind of get the community out and engage in other issues that affect ordinary Americans. Things like um, education, uh, social security reform, So it's kind of what I like to call interfaith 2.0. So we go beyond just the basic principles and tenets of each other's faith to actually working together and doing um, good works that affect everyone.
4: Thank you. Let's get Berlin involved in here before we
10: take more questions from this audience.
5: Do we have anyone with questions?
10: Yes. Hi, my name is Miriam. I have a question, but also have a little bit of counter to um, I think the woman Zana from the American Islamic Congress said. I believe that there is a fair amount of religious freedom in Europe. I mean, she was talking about how the religious freedom is much more in the U.S. I don't think that that is is really the case. And also her point about um, how the law in the United States guarantees rights for all citizens, that all citizens are equal. That might be on a piece of paper, but we've seen in the last couple of months that that really hasn't worked out that way. Um, I think that... (laughs) I think though, that the, the Europeans can learn a little bit from the United States in that um, one of the points I think that she made that there are more laws in the United States against discrimination. So there's more housing discrimination laws, there's more job discrimination laws. There is a problem amongst the, uh, some of the immigrants and their unwillingness to integrate. But there's a big problem from the white European side of not accepting people as sort of fellow citizens. This difficulty that a lot of European countries have with the other. Yeah.
5: yeah, those are very interesting points, and I agree. I was thinking the same thing when you're, um, you're, you're also guaranteed equal rights in Germany and in France, for sure, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Yes, Halim, did you want to make a comment?
7: Yeah, that will raise a lot of very interesting issues. I think, in general, we can say that we are in an age of extremism and not just Islamist extremism uh, in general. And when we come to uh, Charlie Hebdo, um, I think... We have to get this picture right. When In the morning of the attacks, I was uh, just looking at the news and uh, I read the news about a terrorist attack in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, where 38 attendees for a police school were killed in front, uh, and other civilians too. And on the other hand... We have uh, also, we had terrorist attacks like this from Anders Breivik, uh, which was uh, not mentioned uh, in in this whole cases of uh, terrorist attacks within the last years. And I think this is very problematic because we have to get the picture right. Uh, We are in in an age of extremism and also in an age of terrorism in a certain way. And Charlie Hebdo, of course, it was a horrendous attack on uh, the freedom of expression. And it it was also an attack on the marginalized groups of Muslims because the aim of this attack was not just to send a sign against those journalists. It was also the aim was to um, split the Muslim community from the main part of society to have a higher potential for radicalization.
4: All right. I think this is where we are going to come to our break. Uh, We're going to come back and talk about how communities balance surveillance and security, and we'll also be speaking about the uh, social media recruitment strategy that ISIS has practiced so effectively. So, I'm Jackie Leiden, and you're listening to Countering Violent Extremism, an international town hall from America abroad at NPR Berlin in Berlin, Germany. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Countering Violent Extremism, an international town hall on America Abroad. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Countering Violent Extremism, an international town hall on America Abroad. We return now to WHYY in Philadelphia and the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin with hosts Jackie Leiden and Eleanor Beardsley and their live audiences.
4: Uh, I'd like to pick up by uh, pivoting to talk about law enforcement and how law enforcement agencies engage and protect communities without infringing on civil liberties. It's a balancing act, of course, and it's one of the biggest issues in attempting to counter violent extremism in Muslim communities. And to talk about this, I wanted to call on Jeff Tomlinson, Jeff was the head of Philadelphia's Joint Terrorism Task Force for a number of years and he's now an instructor at DeSales University. So Jeff, what kinds of considerations do you make when conducting a surveillance operation? What's your first priority?
2: So looking at surveillance, when you talk about surveillance, what are you actually defining? There's physical surveillance following people around. Uh, There's electronic surveillance listening to conversations. And then there is the bulk collection type surveillance, which is popular in the news and media today as it relates to what the National Security Agency here in the United States is doing. So the idea is, can you identify and defeat those threats, all within the rule of law and within the Constitution? The question becomes, and as I was supervisor of the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Philadelphia, believe it or not, we would have conversations about Constitution, about Making sure we have that right balance of who we're looking at. Is it justified? Do we have the proper authority before we take that next step of electronic surveillance or intruding against um, people's rights?
4: Let's get some reaction here from Maureen and Zainab. While this is obviously a need, follow the Constitution, figure out who to surveil, how to do it. The, uh, the trust issue, maybe you can speak to each other, is also, I think, another huge factor.
2: If I could just offer, and I'm not sure, Zanab, if you were involved. I was supervisor back in 2001, and we had a large outreach to the Iraqi community. And this was um, right around the time that the Iraq war um, began. Transparency was important. If you want to have somebody there to represent your interest, we welcome that. If that makes sense. Absolutely, I mean,
8: uh, this kind of conversation between law enforcement and the uh, community is very important because it helps protect our communities. At the same time. It- Make law enforcement uh, not uh, seeing these kind of incident of violence, such as the one in Texas, as uh, lone wolf incident. These are incidents happen because there are strategic plans, there are goals, there are things that has been it's been set up by all of these radical groups. So it's great that the law enforcement is taking this into uh, into consideration and not turning their back. Uh, and saying, well, America is immune, America is, uh, you know, we are watching uh, closely. I mean, one of the shooters in Texas, uh, apparently he was under uh, the government uh, watch, but at the same time, they did not suspect that he is going in that direction. That put us in in a very um, unique position because we, at the American Islamic Congress, we have a program in about uh, 55 college campuses around the country. A project dedicated to work with young uh, students on college campuses on combating these kind of uh, radical influence on a student and uh, not being recruited to join uh, groups like ISIS or, or other groups. These kind of programs has a huge impact <coughs> on these students in terms of their uh, ability to defend their identity as an American, as Muslim, At the same time, showing the rest of their classmates that they are proud to be Muslims, proud to be Americans. At the same time, they they need the support to combat these radical Islamists who are now in college campuses and community centers. And as a result, all of these young uh, students created a campaign called Voices Against Radicalism to combat uh, the voices of radicalism that they are witnessing and they are seeing in their own community and in college campuses.
4: Thank you. Uh, let's uh, get our NPR
5: Berlin in here. Eleanor, can you hear us? Yes, I can, Jackie. We can hear you. So uh, Henninghoff, we, you said earlier that Germany has not been attacked. You said Germany's just been lucky. But could you elaborate, maybe a little, on what techniques Germany and maybe other European countries are using to combat (laughs) radicalization? What's working, and maybe what's not working, or where they're falling short?
6: It's a very hard question to answer. Um, You could could say, though, that sort of in some ways, um, Al Qaeda, for instance, sort of is advancing European integration because um, the attacks of 9/11 sort of brought us the European Arrest Warrant, for instance. There, sort of, on the European level, there are a number of of efforts really to get a grip with uh, countering radicalization and um, terrorism. After the Charlie Hebdo um, atrocities, uh, interior ministers across Europe came together and sort of promised to be better uh, exchanging information. We were all sort of Uh, surprised that that hasn't happened yet. But to be fair, the problem, of course, is in Europe, you've got different uh, cultures, different histories. Each country has its own particular history of Muslim immigration um, and of of political culture, how to deal with these kinds of questions. On the European level, of course, the emphasis now is on sort of um, exchanging information, on uh, setting up expertise to create a European counterterrorism centre, which is learning lessons from cybercrime. These are sort of all initiatives which are just launched in April and we'll still have to see whether they really work. In Germany in particular, we've already just touched on it, it's law enforcement where you try to stop people early on the one hand and um, on a national level, but I think what really is the key is the grassroots level to go into communities, just as we heard from Philadelphia. That is probably a model which Germany and other European countries could learn a lot from.
5: Okay. Um, during the break, um, someone mentioned to me, came out to me and said that there needs to be in Germany more openness between the government, law enforcement, the people, and the people on surveillance issues. And I'd just like to briefly turn to surveillance. France just passed a massive surveillance law where they can look at metadata, tap phones, they can put cameras in your home now, and... No, There was no protest over it yet. It hasn't passed completely, but it's uh, it's going to. So what do the people of Germany feel about that? And is there a difference maybe within the Muslim community about surveillance? Is it any different than the German population at large?
7: Um, I, I think the only difference is that we feel uh, like we are the reason for all of that. <laughs> and uh, actually, the thing is, when it comes to you know security and when it comes to terrorist attacks, we should never forget that radicalization is a process. It just not happens that you wake up and suddenly you think, ah, I need a belt and go into a a place to bomb someone. The thing is, radicalization is a process, and uh, just to work with law enforcement is not the only solution. Here in Germany, there is like a two-way system. Uh, There are certain initiatives like Hayat, which is here in Berlin, uh, who is working on de-radicalization. So there is also from the state a hotline uh, where you can call if you feel that someone in your neighborhood, someone from your family is going to be radical or is radicalized. And then there will be a connection between this you know, institution, which is not the law enforcement institution, and the family to work on de-radicalization. And there are also initiatives like UFOK, which are on the field of prevention, to not let it be that someone becomes radicalized.
5: Germany um, has recently announced it's going to limit cooperation with U.S. data gathering Is that gonna put Germany at risk or is this a good thing? I mean, which is worse, surveillance or radicalization? I I don't know. Do we have a question or a comment from the audience?
7: My name is Gabriel. Um, Dr. Uh, Hoff mentioned the history of different cultures here and communities. When it comes to surveillance, Berlin in particular had a very famous uh, surveillance system, that of the secret police, and my thoughts go to maybe the Germans are so anti surveillance, where the Americans, who don't have that history of oppressive government uh, regulation of their communication, don't seem to be as hesitant to accept. Uh, surveillance programs whether they be
6: the NSA or something like the uh, Patriot Act.
5: Henning would you like to talk to that is true the history of the, <laughs> the German Yeah I people. think it's
6: a very very sort of complicated mixture of, of, of a number of factors which play into this. I think, think of course the experience of um, Nazi era uh, surveillance by the Gestapo and then sort of later on in communist East Germany by the Stasi does certainly play a role into this sort of this greater aversion against any any kind of surveillance and um, the, the sort of safeguarding your privacy. On the other hand, Germans, when they fill their tax returns, probably give more information to the state than ever proper uh, U.S. citizen would ever do. Um, so there's a certain kind of disconnect, and it's, it's very hard to explain. A, n- a number of things come together, and if, as you said, um, at the moment it, it is, a, is, a, is a play of politics, um, which has led to this, I think, unfortunate. Uh, interruption of cooperation between uh, the German uh, Foreign uh, Intelligence Service, the BND, and the NSA. I hope it's only temporary. This whole issue is now a sort of a politics play, which is played out in Berlin. It's nothing, not so much to do with any of the questions we've touched on.
5: Okay, um, I think, Jackie, we'll turn that back over to you and your audience to see if there's any reaction on this. Yes, thank you. Your
4: name, please.
11: Uh, my name is Zarsha John Kuterov, and I'm a first-generation Muslim immigrant from Uzbekistan. Well, my experience in America is that I've never quite, neither has my family identified as Muslims as much as we did as people from the former Soviet Union. And as opposed to, say, like Muslims in Berlin, we've never had um, kind of like a neighborhood that we were segregated to. So my question to the panel in Berlin is, what can the government do to desegregate and integrate Muslims as citizens, because America is like a nation of immigrants. We have that built-in, becoming naturalized, like I was recently naturalized, um, versus Germany, which is a lot more difficult, like a laborious process. So my question would be, how do we stop the group polarization in Muslim communities that are so segregated and so disenfranchised in Berlin?
5: Thank you. Eleanor, maybe that's a, a good question. How do you want to talk to that? Because... Um, there was also people talking about there, many Muslims are not citizens, but they don't. I was told they don't want to be. It's not just that it's an arduous process. So how do maybe you can talk to this? His question.
7: Yeah. So what I can say is the segregation is nothing which comes uh, because Muslims particularly wanted that to be. This came from the history of Muslims in Berlin as guest workers. A lot of them came from Turkey. A lot of them came from Tunisia, and they were separated and so they built up their own communities and what is happening now is that of course they are trying you know you have very much elderly people who are not who don't want to uh, do this sort of integration thing, because nobody uh, ever talked to them about this, and they don't want to, to have anything to do with them, and now everyone uh, wants to integrate them, so why that? But the young, in, in the younger generation, you see uh, a lot of effort in that, but what you also see is an institutional discrimination. That's a factor we should not underestimate. So, within the education system, within the uh, system of getting a job, or things like that, there is still some discrimination, but we see that also the government in Berlin is working on that with a particular anti-discrimination law and uh, also with trying to bring, for example, when we came to come to law enforcement, to bring more people with migration background into police. And I think Berlin is doing a lot to support the integration of Muslim communities. So that's what I can say to Berlin.
5: Okay. I'd like to just add something, Jackie, if you don't mind, also in response. The situation in France with the Muslims, I would compare it in the U.S. more to the situation with African-Americans because there there are maybe 8 million Muslims in France. Islam is the second religion. It's a really growing, growing minority, and they are concentrated in, let's say, ghetto areas, but not all of them, and it's sort of like the African-American experience. How do you get them integrated? Because there's some very successful African-Americans, many, many, but there's still places where they're not, and so I more look at it like that, whereas the Muslim in America is more of a minority, a novelty, it's from all different places... Thank you.
4: Uh, Let's get some more questions in here in Philadelphia.
12: Yes, please. My name is Arielle, I'm from Central High School. Um, There is a huge stigma against Muslims in America, which is mostly created by the media, um, specifically the conservative media. I was just wondering how we could prevent against this stigma. Also, is the same thing present in Germany? Thank you.
4: Let's uh, go to Maureen Farouk. We haven't heard from you a little bit. Uh, And I know you've worked a lot with young people. Sure. So I think one of the
9: issues that we hear about, you know, controlling the narrative, going to that question that you raised about the stigmatization of the Muslim American community, is that every time there's a tragic incident uh, relating to terrorism, violent extremism, and it has some nexus to the uh, Muslim American community, you generally have an immediate response. Uh, religious leaders, community leaders will, you know, churn out statements, religious edicts, fatwas. They will make announcements in their Friday sermons saying that this is against Islam. But yet, how come we don't see that narrative strongly enough perpetuated across the media? There's a couple of challenges that we face here. First and foremost, it's the lack of institutional capacity building with a lot of community-based organizations. And primarily, we lack media and communication skills. So, And this is not just a problem in the U.S. We have this problem across the so-called Muslim world um i've seen religious scholars in the middle of nowhere in southern punjab in the dead of summer bringing together hundreds of youth in the sweltering heat trying to you know counter extremist tenants point by point And they even had the foresight to videotape it. They posted it on YouTube, but without knowing how to tag it properly, it got literally 12 hits. And this is an immensely popular religious scholar. So time and time again, we have these missed opportunities. So we need to try to help provide more training, help integrate the public and private sectors so that we can invest in these local peace-building efforts uh, to reclaim that narrative. And that's important, not only, I think, from the perspective of the Muslim American community in terms of, you know, their civil rights and their civil liberties, but also in terms of, controlling that narrative in this violent extremist space.
4: Thank you. Okay, we're going to go back to Berlin now, where Eleanor is at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Eleanor, I understand you have some audience questions there.
3: Hi, my name is Chase. I'm also an American. I've lived off and on in Germany for over 15 years. I don't know if I really have a question. It's more of a comment. Um, I think we should be a bit careful about especially putting France, the French experience uh, kind of in the same experience as the German experience, simply because we're talking about, Muslims from very different cultures, oftentimes. And we're also talking about two different types of societies with Definitely. a much different relationship towards colonialism. France had a colonial state that colonized Muslims. The UK had a colonial state that colonized Muslims. Uh, Germany never did, really. And Germany also had a long historical relationship with the Ottoman Empire and with Turkey going back to the, the, the late 19th century. So um, I think... When we talk about these things, and I think this is really one of the key differences that Germany has is that, you know, there are different types of Muslims in Germany than than there are in in France. I mean, most of them come from Yugoslavia. That's something that's lost on a lot of people. And these are European Muslims, right?
11: So, I mean, it's a different experience.
4: Let's get to uh, some questions here. Thank you. Thank you for that comment, however, in Berlin.
11: Hello. My name is Alexandru Donos, and uh, I'm a 12-year student of Central High School Philadelphia. Considering that we're mainly um, looking for eliminating an idea, we're not looking for eliminating groups because that would be kind of useless while the idea is there. Um, How does one eliminate an idea? It is such a um, thing that it's not a thing.
4: Marine, how do you counter an idea, Mm. uh, a cause, you know, a a wish fulfillment? Mm.
9: So what's interesting is a lot of these violent extremist organizations like ISIS, like Shabaab, like the Taliban, they, they're picking up on grievances. They're picking on those five risk factors that we discussed earlier. So when it comes to trying to prevent that or to even de-radicalize somebody from those ideas, you have to get to the core of the issue. So we organize a number of workshops. We do um, uh, sort of like spoken word initiatives. We do podcasts. So students can actually express some of those issues that are troubling them. You know, they create poetry and skits that address um, hate speech, cyberbullying. Recently, for example, we did a workshop um, to develop a podcast on online predators. So a lot of youth, you know, they're playing games online, they're talking to strangers in chat rooms, um, and and what they don't realize is that they're stumbling across the exact same apps and the exact same websites that a lot of these violent extremist organizations are using to recruit and radicalize individuals. So making sure that we can tap into those exact same platforms and channels to counter those extremist narratives is really important. And just real quick, one of the another uh, example of how we can do that is countering the extremist ideologies from within the same framework that the extremists are using. So when it comes to groups like ISIS, we're bringing together traditional mainstream religious scholars who can go back to the source, they go back to the Quran, they go back to examples of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and they try and they they address point by point all the, the tenets that groups like ISIS are trying to propagate and they refute them.
4: Okay, thank you. So, again, that's Maureen Farouk, who is a senior fellow with the World Organization for Resource Development and Education. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Countering Violent Extremism, an international town hall on America Abroad. When we come back, what community groups and others are doing to help prevent radicalization. And we'll have some final thoughts from our panelists. If you want to chime in on these topics, you can post comments on our Facebook page, which you can find a link to at our website, AmericaAbroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Countering Violent Extremism, an International Town Hall on America Abroad. Now, back to Jackie Leiden at WHYY in Philadelphia and NPR's Eleanor Beardsley at the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. We are going to take
4: some questions right now from our audience here in Philadelphia. Would you please say your name and the short
1: question?
12: Hello, my name is Sasha Sproul, also a senior at Central High School. I have a bit of a response and then also a question following that. Um, There was a woman in Berlin who compared the Muslim experience to uh, the African-American experience. I would expand that to just the black experience at large, regardless of what country you're living in. And um, I know you guys were asking why um, social media might be... uh, a tool that many people are using or why basically why are younger people or people around our age radicalizing and becoming more militant and joining groups like ISIS. I know um, for me, I- I'm not Muslim, but as you know, a black woman living in my country, I often feel like I live in a world that is not for me. And I feel like many young Muslim people abroad and also in our country feel the same. And I feel this is part of why they're radicalizing. So. And I also feel like oftentimes how the media portrays a lot of minorities often makes them feel like they're being targeted or like, Um, Zainab, could you uh, respond to
4: this this feeling of disenfranchisement?
8: uh, this is a very important question. Thank you very much to draw that comparison. Um, It does exist because of the circumstances of these young, vulnerable people who are being targeted. There are many people targeted through social media, and not any kid who is sitting in front of the computer is going to be radicalized but these uh, kids actually they have a lot of circumstances outside you know they might be radicalized in their own community or they feel that they've been discriminated against or pushed away from the society so when they come to the in front of the computer and they see it through social media they consider it a hope or something that lift them from the situation they are in and give them more platform they're going to give them uh, weapons they're going to give them control over things they do not think and they mind that they've been processed and taken into consideration to join a radical group. I give you an, an example. A young student just last month joined ISIS. His father noticed there is change in his behaviors. And this guy is in Virginia. So he came and he consulted with some uh, members of the, of the community. What should I do? He's not normal. And he's been, uh, you know, in front of the computer. <clears throat> he had bad grades and being bullied in, in school and came, and that was an access for him from the problems that he have. Then uh, he got radicalized, had some elders, people from the community started talking to him about his issues and problems. Three weeks later, he bought one ticket to Istanbul, and by the time the father found out about that, he contacted the FBI to tell them they couldn't catch him, he was already in. So, the family is devastated, and I'm sure there are many other examples like that. It's happening in the community. So, there are factors, but the social media is the tool that they can
4: uh, be recruited. Let's throw back to NPR Berlin now. Eleanor?
5: Yes, Jackie. I'd like to turn to um, Khaldun Al Sadi um, to answer some of those questions, who's a project coordinator for the Young Islam Conference in Berlin. And you obviously uh, work with young people what is the role of social media that you're coming across and what are the profile of the people who are susceptible to radicalizing and how are they reached and how how does this work?
7: Yeah, thanks for the questions. It's very, very interesting. Uh, So, as we see, usually those people who are going to be radicalized, they usually have no perspective in life. They have often a bad relationship within the family, often to their parents, and uh, they face discrimination in one way or the other. And the thing is, social media is based on attention and gratification. And that's what they find there, and that's the key thing they are looking for. And they are, and that's very important, looking for easy solutions. And uh, if you are searching in the internet, especially on social networks for Islam, you find definitely easy solutions because the keyword Islam is taken over by oftentimes Wahhabi and Salafist groups, which is a sect within Islam, which is very problematic because they have a very literalist view on the Islamic sources, but they are very much trying to make up the image of Islam. And the problem is, when you are searching on Facebook, on Salafist, that means... Literalist movement sites, they are often linked after three, four links to jihadi media sites. And, um, of course, in Germany, for example, you can't reach the jihadi YouTube videos directly. You have to use a proxy. But every young guy is knows how to get to those videos. Of course, we have a problem of a certain image of Islam which comes out of the of, right. of the Middle Eastern. But we should never forget, those are oftentimes coming from a certain group within Saudi Ara- Arabia, which are Wahhabi, which are right. those literalists and terrorist of groups course. from Saudi yeah, yes. but just 18 okay. percent of the Muslims are Arabs, so the majority of them are non-Arabs, and we should never forget that because this is incredibly important when we look at the picture of the very diverse and open community. And nevertheless, the cry for democracy uh, in the Arab Spring came from the minarets for freedom and democracy. I think that this is also very important to That's mention. Inter-
5: yes, yes, absolutely. Jackie, we may have a couple questions here. Yes, let's take them.
7: My name is Ari Feld. Uh, My question is pretty straightforward. What do we talk about when we talk about integration? I've heard everyone, all the commentators say, this is a goal, this is something that we're looking for, whether it's in the United States or in Europe. Um, And so the the corollary question is then, how do you measure integration?
13: Who, Who can answer that question? My name is Saba Farzan, I'm a German-Iranian journalist and I run a small strategy think tank here in Berlin. And I think that's a, that's an excellent question and I would um, measure successful integration really how compatible people migrants are with democracy, how much they are dedicated uh, to uh, the democratic country they live in. And uh, uh, if you would ask me what defines me as a German, it's uh, the love and the admiration that I have for our constitution. And it doesn't matter that my grandfather wasn't German. It doesn't matter that I will never look German, but I can be German and I am German. And I'm proud of it uh, uh, to be German because this is the country that opened up uh, freedom and liberty and democracy to me.
5: Thank you, Savon. very interesting.
13: Okay, I think we're going to come back now to
4: a couple of more questions here.
1: Uh, hey, I am Youssef and I am from Syria, so I come here in you, I have accent anyway. So uh, what should me and Zainab and other uh, liberal Muslims do to improve Islam image? We can't only say uh, so, uh, jihadists or other people don't representative us, We should make, like, uh, mobilization, like, protest, uh, demonstration, only Muslim people. In Europe, uh, USA, also in Middle East, to other people know that we are not terrorists. We can't uh, say only on Facebook ISIS not uh, from us uh, or like this. So we should make, uh, like, campaign or something, like, to express what we are.
4: So you would use social media in that direction? Yeah. How long ago did you uh, Uh, come to Seven months. Seven months ago?
1: Yeah, so thanks for America and for you. Thank you. <laughs> okay.
4: Thank you. All right. Uh
9: wait. So many great points I wanted to touch on uh, all briefly. So the first uh, point is that you know, if you consider the, the magnitude of how much uh, extremist content is out there in, in the Twitterverse and social media, it's astounding and it can be really discouraging as a community organizer. Uh, take the example of one day uh, ISIS um, supporters had 40,000 tweets one day. So, you know, even just posting one video, one meme out there that counters their extremist message is literally a drop in the bucket. Um, So I actually think that working with communities and building that community awareness can be more powerful. So educating parents, educating teachers, law enforcement, um, school counselors, school resource officers, everybody who has any potential uh, linkage to somebody who could be vulnerable to radicalization and educating them about what the various risk factors are, mobilizing those community actors. Uh, towards developing solutions. And then the final component is conducting an intervention where it's appropriate, where there is that space within the community to work and help prevent somebody from becoming a uh, violent extremist.
8: Um, as a Muslim, uh, practicing Muslim myself, and a head of an, a Muslim organization. Our organization, the American Islamic Congress, we ha- have led a lot of campaigns to encourage young people, so whether they are journalists, bloggers, activists in the community, to be the voice for the voiceless or for the majority silenced people. Many people understand that radical Islamists are the one of the problem, but they are a small minority in the Muslim community. But Muslim, American Muslim, for example, European Muslims, or Muslim throughout the, the, the Muslim world who are practicing their normal life every day and going to work, coming back home, and they do not make uh, the news. Thank you.
4: Eleanor, if you could please uh, ask your guests in Berlin for their final thoughts.
5: I will. Khaldun um, al-Saadi, who is speaker for the Dresden Islamic Center and Mosque, you might have wanted to speak to the, uh, give your last thoughts and also maybe a comment for the young Syrian man who's just arrived in America.
7: Yeah. I think there were a lot of great initiatives already started, like the Not In My Name campaign, which was pretty amazing. And in Germany, for example, in the aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo, they had a demonstration in Berlin with our president, our chancellor and the president of the uh, Central Council for Muslims, which was spread over all over the media and the social networks. But we should ask the question, is it just about the image or is it really about having an impact within the community? And I think we should really work within the community to have not only an integration within society but also an integration and especially inclusion within the communities which are often led by migrants who uh, try to live their culture but they have to see that their children the younger generation of Muslims new Muslims have their own culture they have a German culture and they don't want to lose this culture while believing in their faith Um, so there is a lot of things to do especially in Germany and uh, I'm pretty optimistic that if we don't split as a society, we can uh, work on those things together.
5: Very nice. Thank you. So, Berlin Policy Journal, executive editor. Do you have anything you want to wrap up with Henninghoff? Or?
6: Maybe just a short comment. And sort of it's, it's something we haven't touched on, on yet. Another thing which might help is sort of to, to devise a more clever foreign policy towards the Middle East, I think. Um, you, you could well make the argument that we wouldn't be sitting here today or would have so many problems with ISIS if we had sort of tackled the, the situation in Syria early on. And uh, the sort of, I think the West made a very huge mistake by sort of being standoffish and, and not engaging with the ever-growing violence in Syria in, in a more productive and, and creative way. And maybe that's something um, also to consider, that that... We live in an age now where we can't sort of duck away from problems which are across the sea or which seem far away. I mean, every sort of foreign foreign policy issue these days is also a domestic issue, which I think this event has brought to our all attention. And that's a plea for rethink how we in the West address these issues on the ground in Syria and Iraq and elsewhere. That's my final thought on that.
5: Okay. Thank you both very much. Thank you for the guests here. And thank you, everyone.
4: This is going to conclude our Town Hall, Countering Violent Extremism. And we'd like to thank my colleague Eleanor Beardsley in Berlin, and her guests, Dr. Henning Hoff with the Berlin Policy Journal, and Haldun al with the Dresden Islamic Center and Mosque, and also the Young Islamic Conference. Thank you both so very much for being with us.
5: Thank you, Ber- Berliners, for coming. It was wonderful. Thank you very much. And let's
4: go to our panelists here in Philly, Maureen Farouk with the World Organization for Resource Development and Education and Zainab al sawaj with the American Islamic Congress. Thanks so much for being here in Philadelphia.
0: You've been listening to Countering Violent Extremism, an International Town Hall on America Abroad. The producers of this hour are Mia Lobel and Rob Sachs and the team at NPR Berlin. We thank our co-hosts, Jackie Leiden at WHYY in Philadelphia and Eleanor Beardsley at the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, find us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. Support for this show was provided by the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art and the Carnegie Corporation of New York.
1: I, Public Radio International